0: Thinking about healthcare these days, well you're not alone and seems to getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place. With Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said, he's a doctor, and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
1: Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. I'm coming at you on Well 860 AM. We are an iHeart Station, so you can pick us up on your smartphone anywhere. This is Interactive Radio, talk radio, and I do welcome involvement from all of my fans out there, all of you peeps, and we are at 877-969-8600, that's 877-969-8600. I do stick with one theme for the show, so it's somewhat directed, but of course I can Break for a little side dishes here and there that's no big deal again we are at eight six zero w g u l dot com I'm your international dr bill so you can reach me on the internet eight six zero w d w g u l dot com click listen live when you get to our web page and you got me nine to ten every sunday morning well, first of all, chris said that he had some physical therapy done this week, and I wanted to give a big shout out to his physical therapist over at Indian Rocks Hospital. The, the hospital is located; it, it's in the Pinellas County. It's I don't think it's in St. Petersburg. It's, I think it's in Indian Rocks Beach, but I can't remember. Chris, what's the actual twenty of, of your hospital over there? It's it is in Indian Rocks. It's uh it's in a little residential area on a nice uh, section of uh, uh, Pinellas County. Yes, it's a beautiful area over there. It really is gorgeous. So it's by the beach in Indian Rock in Pinellas County. So hello, all you physical therapists out there at Indian Rocks Hospital. Welcome to the show if you're listening. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Val and Jenny at St. Pete General, who taught ACLS yesterday to me and other people, Advanced Cardiac Life Support. And so I thought I'd talk about that today. That Seems like an interesting topic. What do we do when your heart stops? Everybody, I think, worries about that a little bit as they get older. Although, I don't know why. I mean, we'll take care of you. We'll save you. We're here for you. Well, how did all of this resuscitation, the advanced cardiac life support and CPR, and for those of you who don't know what CPR means, it means cardiopulmonary resuscitation, What is that? Well, if you go down and you're not breathing or your heart's not beating or both, then CPR is an attempt by trained or untrained people to try and revive us and bring us back from essentially death. And it started, well, it started centuries ago. People used different devices in the 19th century The longshoremen tried rolling people over barrels who had drowned to get the water out of them and to stimulate, or simulate, I should say, the action of their chest wall, expanding and contracting. Uh, Whether it worked or not, I don't know. I don't think there were any scientific studies on that at that time. But in 1960, we refined it to the point where we had the ability to coordinate electrical shocks of the heart with external breathing and external pumping of the heart. We did this by compression with the palms of our hands in the middle of the sternum, your breastbone, and also the breathing with blowing into one's mouth. Of course, we had to clear the airway, lift the chin up, get the tongue out of the back of the throat, and try to have an open passageway between the mouth and the trachea or your wind tube and there was some success it was 15 to 20 percent of the people were saved to discharge from hospital which was a a giant step forward since those people would have died prior to that no matter what so that was the big advancement but here's the thing there's your heart beating, guys. When it stops, it's all over. But here's the thing. We really haven't made that much progress in a hospital. The survival rate is still about 15 to 20% to discharge. And a certain percentage of those folks will have brain damage because they've gone without oxygen for so long that there is tissue death in the brain. The brain, of course, is like any other organ, any other tissue that needs fuel and it needs oxygen or it won't survive. And the fuel for the brain is sugar, glucose. And as I've talked about before, we actually burn sugar just like our car burns gasoline. And the waste products are carbon dioxide and water just like in our car because they're hydrocarbon sugars are related to oil. And gasoline. So, why haven't we made progress? Why haven't we been able to save more people? Why has the percentage remained the same? Well, these are things that are undergoing constant scrutiny. There are studies at all times. The federal government has even started a study called the CARES Project in an attempt to increase the out-of-hospital survival rate. Now we have people that are trained out-of-hospital, and we also have a lot of untrained people who are willing to jump in. And you can take a basic first aid course and learn some CPR there. But we also have the addition of these new automatic electrical defibrillators that are hung around buildings and in some people's homes now, and these are devices for shocking the heart back into a normal rhythm, if possible, because most of the, the arrests, most of the sudden deaths are related to heart rhythm disturbances, especially in the elderly. And so, if there is a device nearby which can shock the patient, or shock the friend or the person who's down back into a normal rhythm then we want to try that and we want to disseminate that information and knowledge to the public in general and you may say well what's the survival rate of people who have a heart arrest or their heart stops out of the hospital well it's not great it's between 5 and 10 percent it's come up a little bit over the years and certainly, it's increasing with the use of these automatic defibrillators, electric shock devices. And how do they work? Well, they're, they're pretty simple. You follow the instructions on the screen, and you put the pads on or hold, hold it to the chest, whatever the instructions tell you, and the computer in the shock device will actually read the type of rhythm the heart is in, so if it's a normal sinus rhythm, which is what we want, then it's going to tell you don't shock. And if it's a rhythm that's abnormal like ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation where the electrical activity of the heart has become so chaotic that the heart cannot squeeze in any synchronized fashion and therefore there's no blood flow, then it'll tell you shock. So they're fairly simple devices to use and they're fairly safe too. You don't have to worry about shocking yourself. The machine will tell you to not touch the person who's down, who you have the pads on, before you press the button. So it's, it's, it's a McDonald's kind of cash register thing where there's specific instructions and pictures and tells you what to do and when to do it. And it's a wonderful device if and when it's used. So we want to see more of that. We want to see more people, more lay people step up and try to resuscitate. And hopefully that will continue to increase the number of of out-of-hospital survival, the number of people who actually will survive to hospital discharge, not just survive the episode or the incident on the street where you and I jumped in and started CPR and, hooked up the pads, and shopped them, but we want to see them make it through the whole hospital process to discharge, and hopefully with no brain damage. The longer we wait, the less chance there is that someone will come back, that will get a normal heart rhythm, or that we'll have brain tissue that's not damaged. So it's important to act quickly, and that's one of the lessons that they hammer home, and the advanced cardiac life support as well as in the basic life support courses in the CPR. If you stand there for three or four or five minutes scratching your head then they're not going to make it. Well, What is the cost of this? Of course it's tremendous. I mean this is high-tech equipment. Each one of these little defibrillators that are hanging around the halls and and offices and, and buildings and businesses are five to fifteen hundred dollars. And then we have defibrillators, the more advanced version of these automatic electric defibrillators in the hospital. And most of the wards have a crash cart and they have a defibrillator on it. And those can become quite expensive, twenty five hundred, five thousand. You can get used ones from five hundred to fifteen hundred depending on what type you want. We have a used unit in our office because we perform cardiac studies and stress testing. So we we have to have that in case someone goes into a fatal rhythm. We want to be able to shock them and resuscitate them. And we keep a code cart in the office just like the hospitals keep them on the wards. And what's in the code cart? Well, we have equipment to... Breathe for the patient. There's the bag, and everybody's seen that on the ER shows and all that, and it's got a face mask hooked up to it and put it over the mouth and nose, and we squeeze the bag and push air into the lungs, hopefully. We try and clear the airway and make sure that the, that the head is bent back and the chin is pulled up so we have a clear shot at getting air in there. We also have advanced airway equipment things to put tubes down into the airway, into the trachea, Uh, specialized equipment that can be used by people who are not trained in, in putting the tube into the trachea, intubating, we call it. And those are different types of mechanisms and devices that can slip down into the esophagus, your food tube. And there's a little mask that will actually go right over the voice box, which is where the air goes into the lungs. And we can pump up the balloons in the area there and make it so it stays nice and snug in the esophagus. And we can use that to make you breathe. We'll hook our bag up to that, to the little tube coming out. We also have to have medications. And there's a number of medications that we use. We use adrenaline, epinephrine. Adrenaline, we call it epinephrine in the medical industry. You know it as adrenaline. Adrenaline. Same thing, we use that when we have somebody who is in uh, a rhythm uh, that they are unable to sustain life with, like ventricular fibrillation, when we want to get some more stimulation, not only of the heart but also of the peripheral blood vessels. Does it work? We think so. The studies are iffy but we do think that in some cases it will make the heart more amenable to being shocked back into a rhythm that we can live with that will sustain us and will pump blood throughout the body. We also have medications for speeding up the heart if the heart rate's too slow. How does that happen? Well, there can be tissue death, which can damage the electrical conduction system of the heart. And then as you damage... From top to bottom, the rate gets slower and slower. We have multiple centers in our heart that can act as a pacemaker. The sinus node is in the right upper part of the heart, the the right atrium, and the sinus node is an electrical node, and it discharges at 60 to 100 times a minute normally. And that is what activates the rest of the heart. The electrical impulses are carried throughout the top of the heart, strike another electrical node called the AV node, and these are just like little microcircuitries, and they actually conduct electricity. They do it by chemical process, but same thing, and that carries it down to the bottom of the heart. Well, if you knock out the SA node at the top of the heart, the AV node can take over, but it's slower. And if you knock out the AV node... Then there are centers even lower down in the heart that can take over, but they're even slower than that. So normal heart rate, 60 to 100. AV node, 40 to 60. The ventricles, the big pumping chambers, and their own little electrical activity, 20 to 40. And that may not be enough to perfuse the brain. So we use medications, inject a little what we call atropine, and that can speed up the heart rate. We also have pads that we can put on, and the new defibrillators that we have in the hospital actually have the ability, and we put the pads on your chest and your back, and we can put an electrical pulse through that, and we can make your heart beat just like a pacemaker would inside of you, so we can speed the heart up that way. It's a little uncomfortable, but... It's better than the alternative. So we have a number of things on the carts that we need in an emergency. Adrenaline, atropine, amiodarone, a bunch of medications. We also have equipment to support the airway, and we have the shock machine. The most important thing in all of this is the flow of blood. That's what we need. We need blood flowing. And hopefully it'll have some oxygen in it. But even if we don't have oxygen on hand, we know now that the best way to have someone survive is to start pumping the chest first and pump it at 100 times a minute and make sure that we compress the chest two inches, which is uh, probably about the length of my index finger. I'll have to measure that, but you can double check me on that if you want. And so if we can compress deeply enough and then allow the chest to recoil back because our chest is elastic, it will bounce back. And you say, well, how do we stretch the rubber band? Well, we do that with the muscles in our chest wall and our diaphragm, which is that big flat muscle that separates the chest from the belly. So when we talk that up by inhaling, we're stretching the rubber band. And then when we relax, it goes back in, just like a rubber band. So we call that elastic recoil. So we have to make sure we're going deep enough when we push fast enough and also allowing the chest wall to recoil back to a resting state. Does that work? Well, yeah, it works. What's the survival rate? Well, unfortunately, the survival rate has not changed a lot since 1960. So we're, what, 50 years into this, 50 years plus. But it's a new science. And that 15 to 20 percent of people who survive in the hospital when they arrest, when their heart stops, is better than. 15 to 20 percent not surviving. If it were two or three percent, I'd say this is a waste of time and money and resources. But we do achieve some measure of success, certainly not as much as we would like. But again, we're only in the beginning of the science of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 50 years in the great scheme of science is not a long time. So we want to give this a little bit more of a chance. How much resources do we commit to this? I think that's something that the public decides by saying, yeah, we want it. And the government responds by setting up programs in the hospitals. And the businesses respond by having the appropriate equipment on hand to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation to try and bring people back so until we hear from the public that they don't think it's worth it then we're going to continue on with it it's a little bit like playing the lottery you know you're not going to have a a 50% chance of winning you're going to have a 10 to 20% chance of winning if you go down and if you're out of hospital it's going to be 5 to 10% and then there's a small percentage that are going to have some brain damage because The heart was brought back in a timely fashion, but not timely enough for the brain. So uh, the two main organs we've got to think about. And that's why if it's been 10 minutes since somebody has been without a pulse or has not breathed, has had no oxygen in their bloodstream and no blood flowing through their bloodstream, they're going to have brain damage. The exceptions being small children, and people who have drowned and people who are extremely cold where their body temperature has gone way down because basically it preserves the tissues. The colder it is without freezing the tissues, the slower the body slows down and get down to about 88 degrees Fahrenheit before we're not able to bring people back or not able to come back. And with gradual warming and CPR, some of these people can be brought back to life. Same way with drowning patients because of certain reflexes that we have in our body that make it so that our system, certain parts of it, like the heart and the brain, can slow down and hibernate. And then when conditions are good, can speed up and come back to life. We even see this in hearts after people have had heart attack damage. So if you've had a blocked artery and part of your heart wall is, is dead or damaged, there may be some tissue in that area, some cells that are still alive. But they've gone into a state of hibernation because there's not enough oxygen and there's not enough fuel. The heart likes fatty acids. That's what it uses for its fuel, and you say... Fatty acids. You mean fats of fuel? Well, if you don't believe it, take a can of Pam, you know, that spray-on, uh, anti-stick stuff, which is basically just some kind of vegetable oil that's aerosolized, and then take your little Bic lighter, light your Bic, and spray that can into that lighter, and you'll have a torch. I wouldn't advise doing it, but trust me, it burns. So the heart does use both sugar and fatty acids. So at any rate, we can even do certain studies to see if there is heart tissue that is hibernating. We can do imaging studies. It takes a day to do it. But we can see if there's anything there left that we can bring back. And if there is, then we can send you on for surgery or angioplasty and a stent to try and open up the artery to that area and get you back a little heart function. And that's important with people who have lost a good part of their heart. We want to try to keep them alive and help them or save them from having to have a heart transplant. Now, with kids, it's a little bit different. And the story that I told Chris before the show, and one that I always remember is that the babies don't require as much chest pumping they need more respiratory support, especially the kids with the sudden infant death, the SIDS syndrome, and everybody's heard about that, kids dying in the crib. We know a lot more about it now, but decades ago, I was working in an ER, and a mother came running in with a lifeless baby. The child was four, five, six months. I can't remember exactly how old, but a small baby. We did not have on hand rapidly the, the right size equipment for a baby. So, what I did is I took the baby in my arms and I turned the oxygen all the way up on the wall and grabbed the mask and I'd take a breath of oxygen, 100%. And of course, not all of that gets into the lungs. There's some that remains in the mouth, throat, and in the upper wind tube that's not utilized. It's called dead space because it's not being utilized. And so I use my own dead space to blow into the baby. 100% oxygen, and we got the baby back. It's pretty pretty neat to see that. you You really don't think that you're going to do anything, and then when it does work out, you're like, wow, man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so we have a little bit different responses and mechanisms when we're babies than when we're adults. I think that the other thing we have to look at, too, is if you go to Seattle, maybe 10% of the population is over 65. And you come to St. Petersburg, Florida, and maybe 20% of the population is over 65. And that's the age group where we're going to see the most cardiac arrest, the most heart stops. And so we're going to have a higher percentage as well as a higher incidence of people's heart stopping in St. Petersburg, Florida, versus Seattle, Washington. You've got a younger population there, and they're very proactive. That's one of the centers that disseminated a lot of the early CPR and advanced cardiac life support information and push for it and teaching the public how to resuscitate people. And they may have a 9 or 10% survival rate for people who drop over in the street and bystanders step in and start working on them and try to revive them. Whereas in St. Petersburg, we may have only 5%. Why? Well, the older we are, the tougher it is. The harder it is to bring us back. The blood vessels aren't as pliable. There's plaque, fatty buildup in the arteries. There may be previous damage to the heart. The heart may be more irritable. It gets more irritable in a lot of people as they get older. The electrical system is wearing out. Does that mean we don't try? No. I, I think that we need to continue on with this course. That is, as long as the public is willing to support it financially, because the numbers have increased a little bit for out-of-hospital arrest and being brought back. It's gone from 5 to maybe 9% in the past 20-30 years, especially with the introduction of these automatic electrical shocking machines, these defibrillators. And it's important that we look at the science behind this and you say, "Well, what's the big deal? I mean, do we really need that other 20% of bunch of old farts out there?" Well, I'm over 65 now, so apparently I'm in that category. And if I drop over, Chris, you guys, I appreciate it if you would try to resuscitate me because i still got a few things I'd like to do. And who's to say that my quality of life and my idea of quality of life is any different than yours if you're a 22-year-old who likes rock concerts? What's wrong with me? I like jazz. I listen to it in the car. Nothing wrong with that. So I think we have to temporarily suspend our value judgment of what quality of life means until we can resuscitate that person and ascertain what they want and whether or not they wanted to be resuscitated. Now, if you don't want to be resuscitated, make sure that you have your living will and your durable power of attorney, your health care surrogate, all those things that you need. All the hospitals have it. Our office has it. Most of the doctor's office have the forms, and you can fill those out and sit down with one of the professionals in the offices or at the hospital, and they'll explain it to you so you know what it is you're signing. And, of course, you can always change your mind. But that's important, and you can even get little tags, uh, like medical ID tags, you know, those ones you see on people that say allergic to penicillin. You can get ones that say, do not resuscitate me. If my heart stops, if I'm not breathing, let me go that's okay. I mean, that I don't have a problem with that. And I have had scores and scores of patients who have made their wishes known. And when they get sick, I discuss it with them again, if they're awake and able to talk and say, do you want me to keep trying? And they may say yes, they may say no. And then families may step in when they're no longer capable and saying, What are the odds? And then I have to be honest with them and say, I don't even think that by resuscitating them, by doing CPR and advanced cardiac life support, that we're going to bring them back to any meaningful life if we even bring them back at all. And I think we should honor their wishes. It gets tougher, of course, when you have younger patients. And I had a guy in his 30s who had multiple, multiple problems. He had had a gunshot wound, not of his fault, his belly and lost most of his intestines, and he uh, was chronically malnourished. He got tuberculosis because his immune system was so uh, devastated by the malnutrition and had lung problems and had bowel problems and had various and sundry secondary problems and he did not want any tubes. He did not want any feeding tubes. He didn't want anything in his veins. And so we had to work with him as best we could. And he came into the hospital for the last time. And, of course, the wife and the kids and the family, they're all upset. And he's a young man. They don't want him to die. And we tried for three or four weeks. and But it got to the point where I had to say to them, I can't do this anymore. This is just cruel. I'm not going to torture this guy anymore. He's had enough. And at that point, I was able to enlist the family support. Of course, it helps if you work a little bit ahead of that and start saying, it doesn't look good. You know, you start hanging crepe as the, as the Irish say, you hang black crepe around the room. And I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can bring them back. I'm not hopeful. It's looking bleaker every day. So kind of carry people to that point where they can accept that it's no longer uh, logical, it's no longer compassionate to continue to keep people alive with all the artificial equipment that we have. But I do think that there are enough people who are relatively young and I consider 66 relatively young. I have patients in their hundreds. I have a handful of them. One guy, he's 104. Every time he comes in, he wants to know, am I the oldest guy in your practice? Gene, you are definitely the oldest guy in my practice. I didn't even think people could live that long, much less walk into my office, sit down and hold a conversation with me and be fairly lucid. But he can. So we're living longer. We're living healthier lives, believe it or not. And we're capable of being resuscitated, at least to some extent, a certain percentage. And so we're working not only at the in-hospital heart problems and cardiac arrest, but also out of hospital in the AED and the bystander CPR training and all that has made a, a big difference almost doubled the number of people that we can save, although it's still a small percentage. Well, when I come back, we'll talk about the outpatient aspect of it, the guy that goes down on the street or at home. And I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio M.D.
2: News, I'm Val Dior. There's a lot of digging out to do today as millions of Americans emerge after two days of an east coast blizzard that left three or more feet of snow in some spots. Most travel bans are being lifted and there may be some tentative efforts to get airlines up and running, but Washington, D.C.'s airports are expected to remain closed. Another day, at least 18 deaths so far attributed to this storm. Competing claims in the South China Sea and China's activity there are high on Secretary of State John Kerry's agenda today. He's left Saudi Arabia for Asia with stops in Laos, Cambodia, and China. He's also urging China to take a firmer stand on North Korea's nuclear program after its recent bomb test. Two big games today. New England and Tom Brady are in Denver to take on Peyton Manning and the Broncos for the AFC title and a trip to the Super Bowl. In the NFC, Arizona is in Carolina to take on the Panthers, and Super Bowl 50 is February 7th. For more details, go to srnnews.com.
1: Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727 771 That's
3: 727-771-2795. Writing a Christian book, you're doing an amazing thing, getting it all down on paper. But once you've got the manuscript, then what? Well, you can spend a year or more trying to find a publisher, or you can cut right to the chase. Make your book real with Zulon Press. Finding a publisher is time-consuming and uncertain. With Zulon Press, things are quick and definite. They specialize in one thing, helping Christian authors put their books in print. Zulon Press is a division of Salem Communications, the same people who bring you this nifty radio station.
0: Living in Florida doesn't mean you have to stay indoors when bugs and mosquitoes start coming around. You can enjoy your backyard or patio without the Florida heat and humidity. ANIX Outdoor Comfort Solutions can give you back your entire backyard with their specialized mosquito and flying insect misting systems, patio cooling and heating units, and retractable awnings and screens. ANIX Outdoor Comfort Solutions, licensed, insured, affordable, and easy financing. Check out their Angie's List reviews at anix.com. That's A-N-I-K-S dot com.
3: Today will be sunny and cool with a high of 55. Then tonight, clear and chilly, low 40. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and warmer, high 67. Then tomorrow night, mostly cloudy with a low of 54. Tuesday will have sunshine and patchy clouds and a high of 72. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM860, The Answer.
1: Bill, your radio MD on 860-WGUL.com. That's 860 AM on your AM dial. We're in the Tampa Bay area, but you can reach me worldwide on the web at 860-WGUL.com. This is Talk Radio Interactive Radio, and I'm at 877 969 8600 877 969 877-969-8600. 877-969-8600 and if you have any experience with having your heart stop or a family member whose heart stopped and they were resuscitated you're welcome to join me call in and tell us your experiences as i was saying before the break the rate of or the the percentage of people that survived a hospital discharge after an in hospital arrest where their heart completely stops beating has remained in the 15 to 20% range since we started doing this some 50 years ago. However, the out-of-hospital is where there's a great opportunity. Several studies have been done now, and one study showed that the rate of survival had gone from 5.7% in 2005 and six to 9.8% in 2012. So that's almost double in a seven-year period. And that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Still small numbers. Approximately 10% in this study, in this area, of people were saved by bystander help and by the automatic electric defibrillators that are hanging around everywhere now and offices and hotels and airports, different places. So we're making some progress. We also are training more people to do CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and basic life support and that helps too. Of course a lot of people are reluctant out of fear or out of lack of knowledge or of misunderstanding, and so part of what we do as healthcare professionals is try to educate everybody about that opportunity, and it's not hard to do. And again, if you put your, the palm of your hand in the mid-sternum, breastbone of the patient, and put your other hand on top of that, and push 100 times a minute, about 2 inches deep, with enough time to allow for the chest to recoil back to its resting position, then you can get some blood flowing most of the time. The quicker we get to patients, we get to people who are down on the street with a defibrillator if they're in a bad rhythm, the more opportunity we have to save them. Well, where do most of these out-of-hospital heart arrests occur? Where does the heart stop most commonly? 85% 85% in private residences, right at home, 85%. Only 2% of the of the heart arrest occurred in public areas with access to one of these shock machines, these AEDs. And 12% occurred in other public places where there was no access to these AEDs, these electric shock machines that can be used there automatic, so they tell you what to do, how to dial it up, where to put the pads, when to shock, when not to shock. Now, this is probably a big part of this, too, is the bystander CPR. Those of us who see our friend or our family or a stranger go down with an absence of any kind of heart rhythm that can sustain life, the people that jump in and help out has gone from 28 to 36 percent, at least in one study. And there was an increase use of the defibrillators, the automatic defibrillators by bystanders, from 2 to 4 percent. So that's some headway. And we need to continue to make headway in that area. And you say, why? Well, if 85 percent of these occur at home, then it's probably somebody you know and love. If you don't love them or if they just wandered in in the middle of the night, you may not want to revive them, but most of us will want to jump in and do something. Um, I've had some thoughts about the wife, but uh, my conscience has said, no, I have to resuscitate her if she goes down. Of course, she thinks she's going to outlive me, and statistically that's probably true, so... I'll probably be the one who's down and I better treat her right or she won't shock me back into a normal heart rhythm. And I'll, that'll be the end of Dr. Bill. The radio show will be gone. Chris will be looking for work. We can't have that. So the survival rate for out of hospital is increasing as we educate people and we make the uh, automatic defibrillators, electrical defibrillators more, more available. Put them here and there and everywhere. And You say, well, what kind of people survive to get out of the hospital? What kind of heart rhythms can you have that are more amenable to being shocked and treated than other rhythms? Well, there are rhythms that are more amenable to it. There's no doubt about it. We have one that's called torsade de point. It's French. It just means twisting of the points. And this rhythm, the electrical activity of the the pumping chambers, the big ventricles, It goes up and down and up and down, so you see these big, tall, spiked waves, and then you see these smaller ones, and it kind of yo-yos in and out like that. We call that torsade de point, twisting around the point, the point being the x-axis of the electrical chart, and we see the electricity increasing and decreasing in the heart. These are very treatable conditions, And I had a guy who was arresting, and I was on the unit. And the students and the interns came running out, and I went in to help them. And he was in this rhythm called torsade de point. And so we shocked him. And he came back. But with this rhythm, you often go right back into this fatal heart rhythm and where you're not perfusing your body, your brain. Mm-hmm. And so we kept shocking him and moved him to the intensive care unit. And we hung magnesium. We put it in the IV because this is one of the treatments for torsade de to point. And then we started him on an adrenaline drip. Why? Because we know now that if we speed up the heart's top pacemakers up in the top of the heart and get those going, they can overdrive that bad rhythm in the bottom of the heart. We called the electrophysiologists. These are the guys that are sub sub specialists, they're cardiologists who specialize only in the electrical activity of the heart, pacemakers and internal defibrillators and burning out Pathways that are causing the heart to beat fast and abnormally, so it's a sub sub specialty and he put a temporary pacemaker in the in the patient, and the guy walked out of the hospital he shook my hand he was dead, and then he shook my hand as he went out so there are some rhythms that are more amenable to treatment than others. Will you know these? not without some training but it doesn't really matter if you have the ability to do CPR and you have the equipment at hand, an automatic electrical defibrillator, then you too can be a hero and save somebody and have them come back and shake your hand. Again, if it's your wife and you're not sure, then you may want to delay a few minutes and see what happens. (laughs) Or your husband, depending on which spouse But uh, if this is somebody that you love and care about, because most of these arrests occur at home, then you're going to want to give it a shot and see if you can do it. You say, well, I'm scared, Doc. Well, you know what I tell the interns, because they all look like they've seen the devil when they go to their codes in their first year in the hospital. They look at me and I say, what's the worst you can do? You can bring them back to life. That's the worst that you can do is you can save them. And so I think that alleviates a lot of anxiety about this. What the heck? What do you got to lose? Give it a shot. Might as well. So the out-of-hospital arrest are the area that we're concentrating on more and more, and that means you and me at home. Because as I said, 85% of these situations happen at home. And so we want to see more people taking basic life support and learning CPR. If you go to a first aid class, and this is something that I recommend for all the teenagers and young adults who are babysitters, is to take a a class in life support, uh, basic first aid class. Can learn about how to take care of minor injuries as well as how to pump the chest and keep somebody alive until the emergency people can get there. By the way, make sure that you call for help before you start resuscitating somebody because you can't sit there and keep them alive forever. You're going to need some backup and hopefully you're going to need backup from people who have equipment, oxygen, defibrillators, intravenous fluids, all those sorts of things, medications, So, the first thing you got to do is you got to call for help. If you're alone, you dial 911 yourself. If there's somebody in the house with you, then you say, call 911. Tell them we've got somebody down and we need an ambulance here and we need a paramedic team right away. And then you start resuscitating. Things are changing. Even in my lifetime, I've seen significant changes in the way we treat hearts that have stopped beating in an emergency situation. We used to think that the most important thing was to give a few breaths or get some oxygen into the patients as soon as possible. The studies showed just the opposite. The most important thing is to circulate the blood so that there is perfusion to the tissues, especially the heart and brain, and that there may be oxygen enough left in the blood that you can do some good by pumping the chest. So we start with that, and then we add the breathing part of it when we get into it after a minute or two. So then if there's two people there, we would go 100 times a minute, two inches deep, And for every 30 compressions of the chest, we give a couple of breaths. Once we have an airway inside the patient, either in their windpipe or down their esophagus, and we can control the situation a little better, then we can give 8 to 10 breaths per minute without stopping the pumping of the chest. The only time we stop stop the pumping of the chest now is when we're going to deliver a shock. How big is the problem? Well, you guys know that cardiovascular diseases account for most of the deaths in the United States. And approximately 300,000 people a year experience an out-of-hospital heart arrest. Most of them die for the various reasons we talked about above. And we define this as any stoppage of the mechanical activity of the heart. Of course, a gunshot wound to the heart doesn't fall into this. That's externally caused. The things that we look at are, for our statistics of resuscitation and a bad rhythm, are people who have had their heart stop or who have drowned, or have overdosed, who have aspirated food into their lungs and can't breathe, or who have been electrocuted, or who have just had their heart stop because they've got problems with blocked arteries or bad conducting systems or their age. And most people who experience this do not receive bystander assistance. Nobody's there to start CPR. Nobody's there with a defibrillator. And so we know if this goes to more than five minutes, that there's not much hope of bringing the brain back if there's no oxygen there for five minutes. So that's why it's important to emphasize and to have more people participate, more people to learn how to do this. 300,000 is a pretty good number. Pretty good number. And if we could save another 10% of those and have it close to what the hospital's save rate is, then that's not bad. We've made some progress. So if you have 20% of 3,000, that's 60,000. 300,000, that's 60,000 people a year. Not a bad incentive, huh? Not bad at all. So it can be done. What's the cost of all this? Well, of course, it's expensive, but the technology can be used in other areas such as the electrical study and treatment of the heart by the specialists who do this, the electrophysiologist. And it's applied to other aspects of medicine as well. We learn a lot about the medications we use in in the cardiac arrest situations and these can be used in non-cardiac arrest situations as well. So there's a lot more to this. And as time goes on, I'm sure we'll have even more innovations and more opportunities to keep ourselves going longer, healthier, and happier. And of course, the first thing is prevention. So watch your weight. I know I need to do that too. Keep the drinking to a minimum. No smoking. Keep the fatty foods to a minimum. Plenty of exercise, fresh fruits and vegetables. All the same things that Hippocrates taught 2,500 years ago still stand. So the first thing is let's try to prevent heart disease by leading better lifestyles. And if we have problems like high blood pressure or diabetes or high cholesterol, all that we get treated and take the medicines appropriately and do all the things that the doctors encourage us to do. It's getting close to the end of the show. I don't know about you, but I've had fun. This has been kind of an interesting show for me, off of politics and back onto some medicine. What do you think, Chris? Not bad, huh? All right. And how much time we got left, bud? Why don't you just put on some music? I'm just worn out here. You can smooth on out, and I'll I'll hang up the phone now, and I'll talk to you guys next week. This is Dr. Your Radio MD.